0: Well my name is uh, Matthew Castro. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, and I apologize for the, uh, the, the, the craziness with the sound system. That was my fault. Uh, I was messing with this microphone. Uh, I'm afraid because it's, the battery's low, and so I was thinking about changing the batteries, but I didn't know that, that was going to happen when I, took, when I turned it off uh, and, 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 and ejected the batteries, so it freaked me out. So I never changed the batteries. So if this microphone goes out, that's why, and so if I have to stop to change the batteries, that's what I'm doing. Um, we're, having a, uh, we're doing a, a, a series on money, uh, and the title of this uh, series is called Redeeming Money. Uh, and for those who are new here, we don't talk about money all that often here, so don't think like we're one of those churches that every, every year we, it's our, our six-week ser- series on money. That's not what we do here. Um, but it is one of the things in our life, in our world, that money takes up a lot of our thoughts. Um, we, a lot of us work Forty plus hours a week to what? Make money uh, to take care of ourselves, to take care of our family. So money is a pretty important part of our lives. A part of very it's a very important part of the world. Um, People use their money wisely. They use their money for the sake of others. Some people use money to sin against others. Right? Uh, We know in the Bible that some people are greedy for money. They're lovers of money. and so we're, this is our last sermon on the topic of money. Last week we talked about a theology of money. We wanted to talk a little bit kind of foundationally um, how the existence of God and how God created us should affect the way that we handle our money, because he's the creator. He created everything, so therefore he has a right to tell us how we should use our money, right? Um, I'm gonna try to be a little more practical today. Here's the problem with practicality. Uh, anytime you talk about practically how you use money, uh, I could talk. We could. I could literally talk for 40 minutes about how you should budget your money. I'm probably not the best person to talk about that because I'm not a financial expert. I'm not a financial planner by any means. Um, you could go. Uh, there's plenty of good resources out. There's good Christian resources on budgets and how to get out of debt. And obviously, my uh, as a as a preacher the Word, you do not want me to instruct you on those things, because I'm not an expert in those things. Uh, I know a little bit of information. My wife is a far better person to talk to about money than I am. So when I talk about practicality, the purpose of what we're going to talk about, and the, and the title of this sermon is A, gener- a Generous Story. A Generous Story. Um, so to be practical, how should you practically handle your money, uh, is a very uh, spiritual conversation. Um, and it's a very biblical conversation on how you should use your money should actually come out of the gospel, that the gospel story of Jesus Christ actually gives us probably more practical vision for our money than Dave Ramsey or anyone else in the world that can talk about budgets and these type of things. Jesus is a great person to go to for financial advice, And so that's that's kind of the the goal of today, is to kind of uh, explain uh, through the gospel story how you practically should use your money, how you practically think about money, what goals you should make with your money. Our passage today is from John 3.16. What does John 3.16 have to do with money? Well, that's what I'm going to explain. So if you turn your Bibles to John 3.16 and... uh, probably all have it memorized, but uh, we're going to turn there anyways. John 3.16. Uh, hey, for some of you who have preached before or taught, you'll, you'll, you'll take a verse that you probably know by memorization, but then you get nervous when you're in front of people and you forget. And uh, I, I will, I'll be honest with you, I will probably do that if I try to do that by memorization. So it's better I just read it from the Bible. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful again to be in your house, to worship you through song, to praise your name, to call you holy, God. We thank you for those who uh, facilitated that worship, who showed up early this morning to practice and to and to. Uh, to, to steward uh, this time of, of worship, Lord, and, and they bring their talents, they bring their, their time and their, their effort, Lord, to lead us in worship, Lord. I thank you for them. Thank you for providing them. Thank you for providing their gifts and talents to this church. and Lord, we thank you for those who led in the responsive readings, who prayed and led us into a time of prayer. Uh, we thank you for our time of giving as well, Thank you that you provided for us this week and this month, Lord, to give. And Lord, we pray as we open, this, open your word and we talk about money and we talk about your generosity and the story of your generosity, Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts to think outwardly, to think how, Lord, we can use our resources and our money that you provide to further your kingdom. But Lord, what we need in those moments is we need our hearts changed to trust in you through that. Lord, I pray that as we talk about the gospel story, as we talk about the story of your generosity, Lord, that you would change our hearts and you would move us to be people who trust in you and also invest in the kingdom of God. Lord, we love you. We pray for those who are not with us. We pray for those who are struggling. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are uh, going through a lot at work or in their family life. Lord, I pray that you would be be with them and provide ways that we, as your people, can encourage them and lift them up. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, uh, so the main idea is uh, God is generous to the world and he has chosen to reveal his generosity through his people. God is generous to the world and he has chosen to reveal his gener- generosity through his people. I'm to throw some statistics at you. I know they did that last week, but this is about giving. Statistics in America in regards to tithing, to generosity, to giving. Um, it's interesting that the greatest generation, which is a generation born before 1945, the generation born before World War II, are the best givers in our society. They've been this way consistently over the years and continue to be the best givers uh, statistics say that 88% from, of people from that generation, the greatest generation born before 1945, are givers to charities, 88%. And they give an average per year of $1,300. Baby boomers, who are the generation born after World War II, after 1945, my parents' generation, the percentage of that generation that gives is seventy-two percent. They're a bigger generation. They're almost twice as big as the greatest generation after the war. A lot of uh, couples uh, got married and had a bunch of kids. That's why they called them the baby boomers. Uh, this is their generation. Uh, the percentage of that uh, of, of again the percentage of that generation that gives is seventy-two percent, and the average yearly giving of that generation is less as well. It's twelve. Even though that generation is probably the the richest generation uh, in the 20th century, they're the ones that grew in wealth during the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Actually, so less of them give, and they give less money per year. Generation X, which is a far smaller generation, um, the percentage of that generation that gives is 59%. So a significant drop in percentage of that generation. This is a generation that was born in the 1970s and the early 1980s. And they give, on average per year, $732. It's a lot less than their their former generation and generation, the greatest generation that was born before 1945. The millennial generation, which is many of us in this room are millennials, right? I'm a I'm an older millennial because I was born in 1983. Some of you are younger millennials. The percentage of that generation that gives is close to but probably 75%. So more than Generation X, but not as many as the greatest generation. They give, on average, $481. $481. So they give less than Generation X, um, but more percentage of them give than Generation X. And I share these statistics because it's like you can tell from the trajectory that giving or charitable giving, has gone down by generation. Um, now, g- millennial generation gives more, more of them give, but they give less than the former generations. And this has been a common trajectory. It's also been a common trajectory in the church. The, 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 the group of people that make are, are the biggest givers in a church are your older generations, your generation, greatest generation, your baby boomers, um, the millennials give far less than those generations. And I I share these statistics because it's actually not even, uh, it's just this commonality, this common trend. Uh, I wonder that 247 million U.S. citizens identify as Christians, but only 1.5 million of them tithe, give 10%. Only about 5% of churchgoers tithe. 5% of churchgoers tithe. Tithers, those who give 10%, uh, who are intentional and thoughtful with their giving, are 40% less likely to have significant debt. And you're like, well, why is that so? Because typically people who tithe, who give 10% of their income to the church, are actually more intentional and thoughtful with the rest of the 90% of their money. If Christians tithed, there would be an additional $165 billion available for ministry. So you think about all the church plants that could be, uh, that could be started. You think of different other ministries, uh, social justice ministries in cities, uh, and other ministries with, to children and, and, to the, and to the poor that could actually be started and, and financed if more Christians tithe. And gave. So there there needs to be a change in the habits of Christians in, in regards to their money. There needs to be a change of heart, a change of habit when it comes to giving. Because if we gave more, if more Christians gave, we'd be able to reach more people and God's work through the generosity of his people would go even further. John Wesley said, "Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it if if it did. I would throw out my hands as soon as possible lest holding it's way into my heart." And I think what's happened is money has taken so much of a hold of American Christians' hearts that we have struggled to give and we have struggled to invest In God's kingdom. An interesting stat is that people making $20,000 a year are eight times more likely to give than someone making an annual income of $75,000 a year, meaning that making more money does not change people's hearts when it comes to giving. Actually, people who make less money are typically better and more faithful givers than those who make more money, and the reason why is because when you have more money, you tend to use it for yourself more. Than if you had less. People with lower incomes register need. They register that there is a, they have needs. They register that other people have needs. They recognize they're actually more in tune with people in their poverty, so therefore they're more likely to give than those who are making more money who are, are around people who are like them, and they don't ever actually see need, and therefore they tend to spend their money on themselves and not for others. Close to 20% of American families have reduced the amount they give to the local church. And as I said last week, debt, hamstrings, a large group of Americans, right? Uh, 80% of Americans are, are in debt, and a lot of Christians are also in debt. And so therefore, when they're in debt, they struggle to be able to give, to give faithfully. And so statistics, have, if you, I can show you a graph, and you can see the significant drop in giving that is happening amongst American Christians, and this is a sharp uh, trajectory within the church. And so our opportunities to do ministry in the world and amongst our community are less because there is not faithful giving that's happening. In the church. And I want to throw out some other just helpful things to remember as we get further into this is that uh, uh, psychology and, and other people who are, who are more inclined or, or, or more st- students of psychology and the mind can probably explain this better than I can. But supposedly, giving actually makes people feel good makes people feel good. There is, a, there is a, a, a feeling that people get when they give. Researchers have identified uh, a link between making a donation to charity and increased activity in the area of the brain that registers pleasure, proving that as the old ages, ages go, it really is far better to give than to receive. But biologically, it makes us feel good. And that when we give, we recognize that we have a duty to other people. We have a duty to care for other people. And if we're too entwined to our own issues and we're so self-focused on our own issues, we, we forget that we are responsible to also care for those around us, to care for those in our church, to care about God's mission in the world. When we are generous, we are reflecting the nature of our God who created us. The Bible is the story of God's generosity. God's generosity. So it makes sense that if God's generous, that his people should be generous, right? That makes sense. It does. So if you're struggling with like, well, should I be a generous person? Yes. Because God is. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty simple. So let me give you some key word for you kids, all right? Generosity. So ask your parents about this. What does generosity mean? What does radical mean? And what does eternity mean? Generosity, radical, and eternity. God is the ultimate giver, and his people should reflect his nature. This is kind of the, again, this, this, this is an important point that everything's going to kind of fall under this. God is the ultimate giver, and his people should reflect his nature. Again, I'm not stating that if you give, that that saves you. That if you give, God will bless you with more. I'm not saying that, and I will never say that through this sermon, this teaching. However, God, your Father, is an ultimate giver. Therefore, as a child of Him and as His people, you should reflect His nature. First point here is God loves the world. God loves the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved the world. God is love, right? Think about the attribute of God. God is love. When you want to talk about love, you don't talk about fuzzies. And, and you, oh, It's Valentine's Day, by the way, and, and uh, I wanted to tell my wife, Happy Valentine's Day, because I haven't seen her this morning yet, because uh, I've been here. Uh, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, but where do we even get this idea of love? It comes from God. God is the definer of love. If we think about love and we talk about love out, outside of God, then you're actually not talking about love. Love starts and ends with God. Love is rooted in God. Romantic love, love of friendship, love of a parent to their child, it's all rooted in God. God is love. The perfect expression of love is God. God is the perfect expression of love. Exodus 35, 6-7. He is a merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin. Hosea 11, 1 through 4, talks about God's love like a love of a mother for her children. God's love, his expression of love. And who does he love? He loves the world. He loves the world. How has God loved the world? Let me provide some some examples. His generosity of creation, creation itself, is actually a proof of God's love for the world. You think about the physical creation. Right now, it's hard to, uh, to, to fall in love with God's physical creation around us because it looks like a barren wasteland, but God's creation is beautiful. There's colors and there's a beautiness to there's a, a, a beauty to God's creation what um, for a person who's from East Tennessee I love the Smoky Mountains in the fall if you've been to Gatlinburg in the fall if you've been to Kate's Cove and driven in that extremely long line of cars uh, in Kate's Cove the, the the trees are beautiful the leaves are gorgeous the colors are gorgeous they burst in orange and yellows and browns and you your reflection is Goodness gracious, that's beautiful. That's God's creation. Uh, when you ever go to Florida and you go to the Gulf of Mexico, the blue water is beautiful, isn't it? It's clear, it's gorgeous. Um, the green evergreen trees in Colorado. My dad was making, we were going up the lift a few weeks ago in Colorado. My dad made this this reflection, he goes, you know, because my dad lived in, my mom and dad lived in Asia for a few years in Singapore, and they've been to different uh, nations, like Vietnam, and they've been to China, uh, Thailand, and um, Malaysia, and a few other Asian countries, and my dad made this observation as we were going up to the lift, and we were in Colorado, there's a beautiful blue sky, uh, the trees, and the, and the snow, and he says, you don't get this sky in Asia. He said, you don't get this sky in Asia. In Asia, you get a lot of green, you get a little brown, a little gray. You don't get blue. You don't get this beautiful blue sky. Even like nightlife in a great city looks pretty pretty. When you look out at your hotel room on your, on your ledge, if you're in a big city and you see the night lights and you see the, the cars and all the activity, there is a certain beauty to that. When we go out in creation and we reflect on God's creation, and that is actually expressing God's generosity and his love. When we need rest, what do we do? When we need a vacation, what do we do? We go into what? God's creation. We get out of the sprawl, right? We get out of the concrete jungles that is our neighborhoods and our homes, right? There's a, 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 I'm an Arcade Fire fan um, and uh, they have a song named The Sproul too. And one of the lines is, dead shopping malls rise like mountains beyond the mountains and there's no end in sight, right? There's a sense where when we're stuck in our cities, when we're stuck in our suburbs, all we see is concrete and cars and it just seems like mountains upon mountains upon mountains. What do we do? We go out into nature. We go out into God's creation, and we reflect, and we find rest in those places, and that is actually expression of God's character and his love for us. Number two is generosity of the covenant. We go to Genesis chapter 12, 2 through 3, when God uh, when he was generous, and he he uh, established a covenant with Abraham, uh, and he provided all these glorious promises of of a nation and and a people and a land, and that God's uh, was was uh, God's uh, was just out of the abundance of His heart, He gave. And when we think of covenants of God; it's not like Abraham did anything to deserve what God promised. God, Abraham didn't do anything. Actually, Abraham worshipped idols. And then God just said, hey, I'm going to bless you. Not because you deserve it, but because I am full of love. I'm the one who is good-hearted, and I'm going to give to you. And so God's response to wayward human sinners is not judgment. It's actually lavishing the blessings of his promises. And we see this in Genesis chapter 12. The grace to his people. And you see God's grace to his children as he fulfills those promises to Abraham later on. We see the generosity of the the Exodus story. We see the generosity of giving the law. We see the generosity of the promised land in the Old Testament, that God rescued Israel from Egypt in a spectacular style, right, with all these plagues uh, that he put upon Egypt to rescue his people. That That was a show of God's generosity, his love fulfilling his promises to Abraham. Then also he gives them his law. And we think, how could that be a part of God's generosity? How of him giving laws and rules to Israel is actually an expression of his love? Let me explain it. Think about how Israel lived. They were enslaved for how long? 400 years. Do you think they knew how to live being slaves? They had no idea. They had no idea how to live. They had no idea to interact with one another. They've been slaves for so long. So God provides his law to show them how to live. He teaches them how to live before him with one another to handle conflicts, what to eat, what don't eat, how to do business with one another, how to worship, how to self-govern. And so he provides this law. This is a part of his generosity. He also gives them His land, the land, the promised land, this good land that the Lord our God is giving us. And what does he do? He... Israel uh, sinned, they made mistakes, yet He still gave them the land. Even when they were in the land, what did they do? They worshiped other gods, They made mistakes, they sinned against God. What did God do? He continued to bless them. God is not a prisoner of the moment. He is always promi- He's patient with his people. He's patient with Israel, and He provided the land and He provided them prosperity in the land. Uh, and then, ultimately, as we, get, as we see in John 3.16, God, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his Son, generosity of the Incarnation. He gave Jesus. The world at the time Jesus came into the world was far more similar to Genesis chapter 6, right before God destroyed the earth with a flood. Is that how somehow it had gotten so much better since Genesis chapter 6? It was about as worse as it can get. And instead of God judging the world, what did he do? He sent his Son into the world. A self-obsessed world full of sinners, uh, full of active uh, rebels against God. He didn't destroy the world. He saved the world through his son. He sent his son into the world. He provided his son. And what was the celebratory song that the angels sang, the Christmas story? It was celebratory. He says, it's time to glorify God. Why? Because he has provided his son to bring redemption and salvation to the world. Some of you, uh, uh, I was talking to Jake this morning. His brother went to Tennessee, where I went to school. If you want to see me celebrate, uh, put me in a situation where I sing Rocky Top. Uh, probably the best one is at a wedding, actually. If you ever go to a wedding, with that, and the, the people um, that are either uh, that are in the wedding or the family of the, of, the, of the Bride or groom are Tennessee students, man, we play Rocky Top at the wedding, and there's a celebratory singing going on, right? Because we, uh, we love UT. Well, that's not very important in comparison to what the angels were talking about in Luke chapter 2. They were telling the shepherds to be celebratory, they, and, the, and the angels did what? They sung a song of joy. Because why? Because God has sent his Son into the world. God has been generous once again with the world. He also is generous through the cross, through the willingness to suffer and die, the uh, the great injustice in the world is not what you see on television. The greatest injustice of the world is what happened to Christ on the cross. Christ was without sin. He was innocent, yet he hung on a cross. Christ did this willingly. Christ willingly laid down his life. This was Christ's song of worship, fulfilling his Father's will. And he did this for the sake of consecrating himself for who? For us. He sanctified us in the truth through his blood on the cross. And God, again, expresses his generosity. The last one is he's generous through his grace. Whoever believes in him through faith in the person of Christ, we are justified from our sins and adopted into the family of God. We shall not perish, as John 3.16 says. Condemnation is not in our future There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By God's generosity, not by our works, our sins are all we have to offer. We have nothing to offer. None of our works are sufficient to save us. It provides nothing in our salvation. All that we have to offer is our sin. And in Christ, you are cleansed and given a new identity. And the last one is a generosity of eternity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that you shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. You'll have eternity with God. The reality of eternal life changes money. It changes everything. The reality of eternal life, that God gave us his son, that he saved us through his his son's death on the cross, that he gives us grace through our faith in Jesus Christ, he then gives us what? Eternal life. That changes money completely. Why does it change money? Because if there is no eternal life, then it is true that the moment is all there is. Therefore, whatever money you have in your pocket, you might as well spend it on yourself. Why? Because that's all there is. That's all the moment. Whatever happens now is all that matters. What happens in the, in the, in the distant future doesn't matter, right? Because you're going to die, and then that's it. So there's no point. Material things will satisfy or can satisfy, because why? There is no satisfaction anywhere else, so you might as well spend your money on yourself, making yourself happy. And paradise is achievable now. If there is no eternal life, if there is no uh, heaven and eternal life with God, then paradise is achieved now, and you might as well find your way to the top as fast as you can, and whatever money you have in your pocket or in your bank account, you might as well spend on yourself. Buy the boat, buy the second house, do everything you can, because why? Paradise is here. There is no paradise after death. So you might as well do the best you can and, and, and earn as much as you can and spend it on yourself and on your family. The second point is, his people make visible God's generous story. His people make visible God's generous story. So again, eternity matters. The generosity of God by giving us eternal life matters. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse Nineteen through twenty-one. This is again a passage you're all very familiar with. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For there your treasure is. For where your, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not lay up. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Why shouldn't I store up things on earth? Why? Because again, if there is eternal life in God, then the moment is not all there is. It's not satisfying either. So storing up a bunch of stuff on earth is not satisfying. Why? Because there's eternal life in God. And paradise is not achievable here. Why? Because there's a better life after death with God. So why store up why not store up things on earth? Well, I just gave you three reasons. Let me give you some more reasons. Well, so actually, the Bible gives you more reasons. Jesus says, because moth and rust destroy. Thieves will break in and steal. There was no very very few bank the bank system that we are uh, accustomed to today was not what was uh, reality back then in the first century. So if you had money, you would you would store it somewhere. You would hide it somewhere in your in your place, in your home or something like that. Well, if you stored it somewhere, and you stored it in a physical place, well, what's the possibility that could happen? Well, if it was if it was not an actual hard currency, it was an actually like something that was uh, perishable, um, something that uh, could be destroyed through rust. Well, then that would make the value of that thing go down, even by just storing it somewhere. And if you if you put it somewhere that could be accessed by someone you don't want it to access, you don't want to access it. Well, then it could be stolen or robbed. Uh, I lived in Sweden for a little bit. And if you uh, know anything about Sweden and Scandinavia, it's the land of the Vikings, right? Um, And the Vikings would do what? They would build these mounds. And what they would put in those mounds is they would put all their possessions because they believed that when they went to the afterlife, they needed their horse. So what they would do is their horse would be killed, buried with the person, so that when he went to the afterlife, he had something to ride. That sounds silly, but they believed it. That's why they would bury their ships. Why? Because how are they going to get over in the afterlife if they don't have a ship? Well, it was buried with them. Actually, wives were killed when their husbands died so that that wife could go with them into the afterlife. So they could, make, you know, they could have their wife in afterlife. And that's why they would bury them in these massive mounds, because they would bury all their stuff. The belief was is that that there is more, that you, you bring your stuff with you, that you can store up stuff on earth and actually take it with you. But you can't take it with you. So there's no point in building it up or storing it up. Jesus says, instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What does that mean? It means belonging to and living by the priorities of the kingdom of heaven, to prioritize the things of God above the things of the world. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also if you belong to Christ, your heart is already changed. So your heart should treasure in what? God and the things of Christ. Your heart has been changed. Therefore, if you're a Christian whose heart has been changed by Christ, you should therefore what? Prioritize the treasures of God. So it's, 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 all, about, it's all logical, right? It all makes sense. If my heart's been changed by Christ, then I belong to Christ, Therefore, I shouldn't lay up treasures on earth. I should lay up treasures in heaven. Therefore, I should prioritize the things of God over the things of earth. Actually, that is a blessing, that you do not have to rest and put your faith in things that perish, the things that could be robbed, the things that have no eternal value. Because God has brought and given eternal life by his generosity. By our storing up treasures in heaven, we make visible God's generous story. We show the world that God is Lord over the universe, and he is concerned with the things of humanity, of man, that God cares, that God is Lord. And when we trust in God and we put our treasures in the things of God, we show the world that we're not trusting in the now. We're not trusting in the world to satisfy us. We don't believe there's paradise on earth. The purpose of our money is to bring visible God's eternal plan, that there is eternity, that Christ Jesus brings a, a, a satisfaction that is eternal. And we actually can externalize that truth by how we use our money. Because the world will go, why do you do that with your money? Why do you set 10%, 10% of your income and you give it to God? Why would you do that? Because we believe that we don't need money to satisfy us because we have eternal life in Christ. Everything is moving to this end. The telos of history, the telos of your life, the telos of your money as well is in the eternal reality that is in God. And that our understanding and our understanding of the world is through the mission of God, that God is making his name known, that he's making his redemption known. Why does he call Christians ambassadors of Christ? Ministers of what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. So how do, you, how do you live out that calling with your money? How do you do that? The tools of his generosity. Uh, we are tools of his generosity uh, mission on earth. We are his tools. We are his people. The money that we have in our pockets, the money that we use, is actually God's instrument and means by which to externalize to the world his generosity. Since Christ is instructing us to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth, we can be worry-free because God has taken on the burden to provide your needs. So you have to remember this. If God is calling you to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth, he is taking on the burden of doing what? Providing for your needs. You have to realize that. God's not saying, oh, by the way, store up things in heaven, not on earth. And, yeah, yeah, right, it's all on your It's all on you. Good luck taking care of yourself. So you're, you're, you're not interpreting Scripture with right passages. God provides, and God calls you to store up treasures on heaven. They go together. They're not inconsistent. Even says uh, Matthew six thirty one through 33, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. This passage is a few verses past the one I just read before. So don't trust in the things in the earth. Don't store up things in the earth. Store up things in heaven, and at the same time, don't be anxious about what you need. God will provide it. God will provide it. God's goal for your financial life is that it would be di- driven by the grand call of his kingdom, not by personal needs and provisions. God's goal for your financial life is that it would be driven by the grand call of his kingdom, not by personal needs and provisions. And too many of us, our our, our driving force and our demands in our financial life are our needs. God will provide. God will provide. Even Jesus, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, he came into the world to save you so that you will no longer live for yourself he says. He saved you so you wouldn't have to live for yourself anymore. That's a part of God's grace. Why would you continue to live as if you are the one that has to live for yourself? You're basically saying that God's grace and his redemption is not good enough to provide for your needs, and therefore you have to be completely focused on yourself. God's word is pleading, pleading with us to embed our personal money stories in the larger generosity story of God. The reality of eternal life with God proves where and when satisfaction will be found. It will not be found here. It will not be found now, but only in grace in Christ can truly provide What is satisfaction, and that is as our satisfaction is found in Christ, and when we will be completely satisfied is not in the world today, but in the eternal future. The reality of eternal life shows us where to invest our money. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. Why? Because it's eternal. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 9 through 10, our Father who art and hallowed hallow be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. There's where we invest it, in his kingdom, which is eternal. Christ is giving us financial advice in the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving us investment advice. The reality of eternal life clarifies what is valuable. I know what is a value, value for most of us in this room. It's a comfortable life, right? We want to be comfortable, is that a bad value? It's not a bad value at all. To have a, a, to have a comfortable home, to have a, enough food to eat, uh, that's not a bad value. Too much of our, but too often that is our top value when it comes to our money. We spend our money in pursuit of what we consider valuable. Well, what do we know from the church history? What do we know from saints that have come before us? They can teach us what to value. Do you think they value the best clothes? Do you think they value the best houses? Do you think they value their wealth? They're in heaven with Christ, and they are telling us those things are not valuable. The value is in God and his kingdom, and that's what you should value. You should value redemption that is in Christ above all things. You should value Christ and his redemption. And when we know that, when we believe that, when we recognize that that is our chief value, is redemption, the redemption that's in Christ, we start then to think about how do we externalize the truth of eternal life? How do we externalize the story of God's generosity? How do we make it known? Why? Because it is the most valuable thing in the world. And therefore, since it has so much value, we should invest in it with our money. Uh, I, I love the movie Moneyball. It's a Brad Pitt movie about baseball. There's a great scene with uh, Jonah Hill. I can't remember the name of the character's name, but he's kind of the geeky yell guy who loves statistics. It's kind of the, the one that convinces uh, uh, Billy Bean to, to do this with the, uh, the Oakland A's uh, to kind of utilize statistics and, and, and analyze statistics to kind of build a baseball team. But they have this, this moment uh, as like uh, he, the, the guy that Jonah Hill's playing is a little bit, He's hesitant. He doesn't. Uh, he, even though he's he's pushing for this, even though he's convinced Brad Pitt's character to, to go in this direction, he's not fully convinced. And so Brad Pitt's character says, "Do you believe in this or not?" Like he he says, "You have a Yale degree. You're 25, 26 years old. I'm in my 40s. I have a child and I have a high school uh, a high school education. If I believe in this, why don't you believe in this?" And he asked us questions like, do you believe it? If you believe it, we should go all in on this strategy. Which we have to ask ourselves the question, do we believe in the gospel of Christ? Do we believe it? If we believe it, then prove it with your money. Prove it. Prove it that you believe it. That's all we're saying. That's all the Bible is saying. It's not saying, make sure you give $2,000 a year. It's not saying that. Make sure you give this percentage a year. It's not saying that either. It's saying, prove it. Prove that you believe in the gospel with your money so that the story of God's generosity is made known through you and through your finances. So my last thing, gonna be really quick, I know we run out of time, is this baby steps to radical generosity, baby steps. Realize that you have grace in the present, that God's grace is with you, that he is sanctifying us in the likeness of Christ. He has provided us all that we need for godliness. God will provide his grace while we live in the present. God's grace is not just given in the future, it's in the present as well. He is with us currently, he is with you right now. Wherever wherever you are financially, God is with you and he will give you grace. Also, there's hope and failure. We don't spend our money in the hope of earning his love, Right? We don't fix our money issues, and then they, if I fix my money issues, then God will love me more. That's, that's, we don't put our hope in our spending. We put our hope in God. Our spending is being transformed by his love. His love will not leave us. We will fail mon- financially. We will make mistakes. We will overspend at times. We will be self-focused at times, but God is transforming our hearts, and we have hope That God will transform us, He will sanctify us through His Holy Spirit. So that you can start making, and this is just a a baby steps, you can start making small offerings. You, You can set aside a small amount of money per month or per week, whatever, that you are that's regular and that's consistent. You're seeking the wisdom of God, you're in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you are giving. You're giving to the church. You're giving to other, other opportunities that come uh, across. You are providing for those in need. But we're not talking about a ton of money. We're talking about a small offering, which is baby steps. You're, you're trusting your finances to God. You're trusting money to God, and you are taking baby steps. You are scared to death. You're scared if you gave five bucks that all of your money, that you wouldn't be able to pay your bills. That's where you are. And so all you're doing is trusting God in a very small way. The hope is, is that over time you will become more mature. You will graduate to tithing, to giving 10%. We see this calling in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. It's an act of faith. It was a trust in God that he will continue to provide and that you are being a good steward of your finances with the the 90% that remains. And that is the hope. That the hope is, is that every Christian would give a 10th. You go, well, that's impossible. It's not impossible. The the, the 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 maturity and the, and the and the and the discipleship would lead you to a tenth, that will lead to eventually where you're able to give radically, radical generosity, that you will become a cheerful giver, as Paul says in Second Corinthians nine verse seven, that the God the gospel would call you to to an, a, to gospel love, and that you would be able to give beyond ten percent. That you will be able to give because God has provided all the opportunities and you just trust in God so much that you're able to give even more than the 10% that the Bible in Leviticus 27 instructs. That you're able to give more sacrificially and you're, more, you're, more, you're able to care for others even more. I think all of us should have goals with money. I think you should have goals with money. What are your goals with your money? What are your goals? What are your gospel goals with your money? If you just read the Bible, one of your goals should be about building Christ's church. Christ says he's going to build his church. He's going to use his people to build it. And you are one of those tools by which he's going to build his church. So one of your goals could be, I want to uh, support more church planning. I want to support more missionaries. The gospel is known and made known in places where it is not known. I want to bring relief to those who need help. You should have goals with your money. You should have gospel goals with your money. I would honestly encourage you to start praying about those now and thinking about those now, about what is God leading you to do with your money? What are your goals with your money? Because that will express what you believe about the gospel. It will express, do you actually believe in eternal life? Do you believe that you are actually saved by Christ and you have eternal life with Him? What do you value? These are the questions you should ask when you build your yearly budget, when you build your monthly budget. Do I believe in the gospel? What do I believe about eternal life? And what do I value? Those are three questions you can ask yourself that are gospel questions that will help you build goals with your money and redeem money in your life. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this, uh, this opportunity, Lord, to talk about money, even though it's, a, it's an uncomfortable subject for us. We don't like to talk about money. We don't like to talk about money with our kids. We don't like to talk about money with our parents. We don't like to talk about money with our friends. We don't like to talk about it. And so therefore, we hate listening to it from the pulpit. But Lord, it expresses our heart. It expresses what we trust in. It expresses what we value. And Lord, you say that through Christ Jesus, Lord, you have given us eternal life. may that be the, the, the theme by which we think about money, what we think about our budgets, Lord, how we use our money, that we are saved for eternity, that we have eternal life. Lord, transform our hearts, transform our values. and Lord, use us, Lord, to be tools to externalize your heart, your heart of love and your heart of generosity. Help us as your people to reflect your generosity to the world. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper. Uh, The way that we do that here is... um